This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Thanks very much. Well, first of all, I I won't be so much talking about poetry as reading from my poetry and and making the occasional comment and fielding your your questions, if you have any. I, I hope at least... You know, some, uh, with a lot of people, uh, when they discovered your poetry, they said, oh, I, I don't understand poetry. Well, I hope my poetry is accessible enough, I think it is, that you will get something first hearing around. And if, if you don't, please let me know. I'm going to start off, I, I, I suppose partly what I want to do here is establish my street cred as as a poet humanist, if you like, or a humanist poet. And I'm going to start off with a poem that uh, <coughs> is called Luxuries and is really about my background as a sort of introduction. There's just one little footnote. Uh, when we get to the term Timon's Villa, this refers to a um, big 18th century house that, in fact, Alexander Pope, in one of his poems... Uh, called Timon's Villa as an example of excess and extravagance and so on. Luxuries. Growing up on the Puritan pungencies of Wright's cold tar soap and Dettol, no car, no telephone or central heating, but plenty of milk, fresh air, long hikes in the Pennines, I find now when I see those limousines sidle past sleek, plush, padded cells of privacy, or glimpse from afar, posh executive suites replete with every kind of turn-on. I am not envious. How much can a single person take? How many cars are enough? Private jets, yachts, jacuzzis. How many acres of broadloom? I used to live near Cannons, the model for Timon's Villa, now an exclusive girls' school. But nothing rubbed off. My father, as he pottered in the tool shed, hummed the Internationale. My tiny family was big on brotherhood. The Co-op Women's Guild, the striking miners. We were undemonstrative misfits in our North London suburb, Quaker revolutionaries. Like Baker Mountain hanging above the horizon, it is still a long way off, that dream of equality, to each according to his need. Four walls, firewood, a roof, a lake of clear water, a few thousand feet of clean air. The second poem is the title poem from the book, The Bridge, which came out in 2000. I'm just reading from my last four books. And uh, I've got about 14 poems altogether. Just, um, <laughs> uh, this is for Tassin and Gulza, who are two um, secular Muslim friends of ours. 
They're, in fact, we often have arguments whether we should even they should think of themselves as Muslim at all. Anyway, that's another issue. The bridge. Why had I thought them secure, these memories? The walls of ancient fortresses, sails crowding the quays, a market square where watermelons were stacked like cannonballs. Even the bridge at Mostar, that lasted 500 years, a masterpiece, is history. At home, we shuffle through folk dance tapes, photographs. Nothing can restore the lost cities. Always what is built later on vacant sites superimposes, throws the mind off its scent. True, it is only stone, carved wood, bone ornaments, and their peasant custodians have been driven out or killed, even ancestral cemeteries destroyed. But though earthquake or flood do the same work, transforming a once familiar landscape, in time we can accept that cost far easier than the same damage done by a neighbor's hand. These buildings, castle and mosque, are what helped them survive, part of what shaped them into Serb, Croat, Bosnian, gave them continuity. Now when so much is gone that made us human all the world over, where do we find the heart to begin again? Now, one of the things, uh, one of the interests I've had all my life has uh, been in travel, and uh, I've written a number of poems, especially in this, uh, uh, this book, Local Time, uh, which is a, a third of the poems are about my experience of India, where I went for the first time in 1986 uh, for 10 weeks. I've been three times subsequently, uh, and also uh, the three and a half months I spent in St. Petersburg, Russia. And uh, I'm going to start here with a poem called New Delhi Street Theatre. Now, one of the couples that we knew in, in Delhi uh, had a street theatre and they would go around to various... Uh, um, a, th a troop of, of, of uh, young men, I think it was entirely young men, maybe, uh, and they would uh, go around to slums and to other areas of the city that would not normally go to, to theatres and present short uh, plays that they had written themselves about pressing sort of social issues such such as for instance dowry which is still alas a, a big issue in india or aids or a number of other uh social or health or uh, issues and so we went with them una and i on on uh, one occasion when they went to the presidential palace and, and were um, playing in front of the servants of the presidential palace. An updated mystery cycle. They come in a minibus 
to the back entrance of the presidential palace, this tiny troop Alok had scoured from the streets, as is, and trained. In seconds they are ready with sound system and lights festooned from the trees and start to the beat of a single drum, tumblers and acrobats, dancers and clowns, performing to a sprawl of laughing children of chauffeurs, gardeners, in a shaded yard far from official India. In white face, speaking Hindi, they assume in turn the urgent masks of crack dealer, junkie, landlord. Now a bridegroom's family holds out for a larger dowry. They strut, threaten, entreat, collapse in pain. The children, squatting, look on, their bright circle of faces puzzled, amused. But for me, also in white face, the body language translates easily into dangerous truths. On edge behind washing lines, the mothers stand in doorways, unsure what it is their children are absorbing. Is this a disloyalty they are too young to handle? Will these scenes outsmart or lead to communal violence? The children are caught up in the drama of their own lives today, tomorrow. The tableau ends suddenly, props disassembled, stowed. Like units in a guerrilla war, the actors depart, melt back into the urban forest. No victory, certain. And a couple of poems about St. Petersburg, just first of all a very short one. Uh, one of the things that struck us when we were there was the number, uh, this was in uh, 2002, um, and uh, there were a lot of um, people, elderly people, especially elderly women, uh, who had found their, their uh, because of the financial changes that the government brought about, uh, found their pensions reduced to about a tenth of what they were, and so they were forced onto the, onto the street to sing or play instruments or do other things for, for money. At the heart of another ex-empire, flaking decrepitude, everything for sale, outside the metro, bedraggled flowers, upheld by women who have no other sustenance. And then this next one is, is called Trams. Now, I'm obviously well aware after spending more than half my life in North America that we call them streetcars. However, Trams uh, has European overtones to it, and that's what I wanted to, to get here because that's what I'm talking about. Trams. No wonder they grind through my dreams screeching round curves, sparking when overhead wires cross. In drafty, cantankerous slow motion, they emerge from Gothic squares, clang past statues, cathedrals, railway termini, like gigantic iron maggots crawling out from the guts of the old town. They are too linked 
to Europe's history ever to fade away. In 68, during the Czech Spring or in Budapest, Warsaw, safe in America, we watched them on TV, overturned, burning, converted to barricades, their charred skeletons, our iconography. Almost every day in St. Petersburg, I pass by the tram depot, their resting place, but I do not trust them to stay put. Though their wheels are shackled with grass and rust festoons their destination boards, should they rise up again, who knows where they will wander. Through the 900 days of the siege of Leningrad, a city built upon bones, when the power failed and the trams were stopped in their tracks, through hunger and cold, citizens carried their dead to stack like cordwood in the ice-bound morgues, a sacrifice awaiting burial. Uh, now, a, a very different change of tone. The middle part of this book is, is called Neighbourhood Watch, and it includes, uh, unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to have the whole part of uh, what I'd conceived of as a, as a, a, a sequence called The, the Unchristian Year, uh, which are poems about all those days, such as uh, St. Patrick's Day, for instance, or or Mother's Day, or uh, <coughs> New Year's Eve, for instance, uh, that are not officially part of the Christian year, plus also um, one on Easter and Christmas, another one on Christmas. Uh, I'm going to read you Mother's Day, if nothing else, just to prove that uh, this I can, when I feel like it, write strict rhymed forms. I mean, what I've been reading so far have been uh, uh, free verse where Hopefully, the, the, the rhythm, the cadence carries it along. So, Mother's Day. So, this is, in a way, a, a, a sort of ironic response. A lot of my poems have a, an edge of irony to them, as you may have noticed already. Mother's Day. For once, something that reads like a poem, a spray of hallmark metaphor in a vase to help us say those cliched things we're supposed to be thinking of, a lifetime's hoard of resentment and of love. You taught us hygiene and how to hold our knives, what qualities to look for in our wives. Your standards ran through us like a dose of salts. We pay you back with doggerel and schmaltz. Proffering flowers or chocolates, our pockets full of poses, cute childhood habits, morphed into neuroses. On this manufactured day, we realize that apron strings soon knot into family ties. The Holy Trinity, Virgin, Mother, Crone, won't let us think you have a life of your own beyond our needs and can't use the unwanted tribute of gift-wrapped mixed feelings from your fallen fruit. So now moving on to Night Vision, which um, came out three years ago. Uh, now I've already alluded to my Quaker upbringing, and 
I was a conscientious objector. I, I, I served for two and a quarter years in a thing called the Friends Ambulance Unit International Service. So uh, we were, this is how I got to Holland and Germany and picked up both languages when I, in my late teens. Um, so I always feel awkward, and I, I imagine a, a number of people, whether or not, uh, well, certainly uh, if, if they have not served in the military, feel awkward when November the 11th comes around. And I try to work through that. I mean, uh, the I'm very much um, aligning the so-called uh, remembrance with the idea of the war on drugs. That's the basic sort of metaphor. The, the, anyway, the best, uh, I'll, I'll read it and you can see. Poppies. That time of year again, grieving relatives gather to wonder what might have been as octogenarians shuffle toward the cenotaph. Will the line never end? Flanders Field, Ypres, Dieppe, a hundred campaigns weigh down their chests. As dark suits, bomber jackets, explode in crimson, I turn away, refuse the importunate poppies, feeling shame that I must pass up these tokens, yet knowing it is not their sacrifice, I reject only the Pavlovian dogs of war that hounded them to early deaths. The drug of glory returns through flashbacks, stays in our system forever. Meanwhile, across three continents, a war that dare not speak its name injects action heroes into the jungles of Colombia or the Golden Triangle, strafing away from helicopter gunships, shooting up farmers who scratched out a meagre living from mountain coffee, then switched to an instant cash crop, a little white dust, El Dorado, for America's grasping despair. War is the opiate of the politicians. A photo op chance to look tough with our boys up at the front. And I who was never there should keep my peace, but cannot. No less for me the shells rip open the dark. This night vision is mine too, goes over the top in my sleep with derelict veterans selling indulgences. Um, now, a very short one. Um, this is called One Fine Day, and uh, it came about when we were watching uh, um, a performance of uh, Madame Butterfly, and I noticed in the program the the scene for part of the opera is Nagasaki, the sea, the harbour. So I made a connection. I mean, poetry basically for me, and I think for a lot of poets, is making connections between apparently disparate things. One fine day, Nagasaki. The sea, the harbour. How could Puccini have known that Pinkerton man, dressed in black, would return to secure his treasure? 
Even with her telescope, Butterfly could not foresee decades later how her little boy would come home with that ultimate American gift of light. And uh, this one um, is not overtly political, um, but uh, it's, it's one, of course, that uh, has increasing amount of relevance for, for, for me, for people as we get older. It's called Settling In at the Père Lachaise Cemetery which is, uh, as you probably know, uh, one of the most famous cemeteries in, 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 in Paris and lots of celebrities there. The city's microcosm, this well-ordered, tidy suburb of yellowing autumn, offers tombs of all sizes among the lime trees and chestnuts. Though even here, the avenues are named for politicians and heroes. If some arrondissements seem more high class than others, with shade more opulent, serviced lots overflowing with fresh flowers and immortelles, it's hard to know from the names on headstones, graced by the same sprawl of kitschy angels, languidly weeping willows, doves. Though less of all this than I'd expected, it seems so randomly democratic, a true reflection of the citizens waiting outside. Granted, the dead are more easily disciplined than the living. Even the rebels, the social activists, lie quietly here, protesting mouths subdued by the ultimate painkiller and so multicultural. Triumphant black marble boasts Chinese, Armenian, Hebrew. In family vaults, generations of moss, lichen, obliterate some leading businessmen, generals, public officials. But what editor, I wonder, decides who makes it into this anthology of the dead? Sight map in hand, Una and I, wandering here only an hour or two, weren't interested in Jim Morrison, gave Chopin a miss, never found Maria Callas or Sarah Bernhardt, but it was time enough to savor the weight of collected absences, to ponder what remains of Imrenage, Poulenc, Edith Piaf. My wife filched one of Colette's carnations and proffered it in homage to Oscar Wilde. He would have been touched. In any case, if there's a next time, if we return, there are enough distinguished visitors left whom I want to pay my respects to. Jeanette Neveu, Balzac, Max Ernst, Delacroix, Naval, Proust. Will the line never end? Death's a growth industry, an international combine harvester. For now, we move on back to the living, but aware as we enter the metro, that the underground bides its time, waits to take over the city. I think I'm going to 
leave something a little bit uh, lighter now. Let's go change. Um, in fact, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll read this out of sequence, but uh, um, that doesn't matter. A man of many parts. And you'll see soon enough the <laughs> relevance of this. Uh, and uh, this is uh, dedicated to a friend of ours, Anthony, who, who is himself a, a medical uh, researcher. A man of many parts. Though my dentist tells me my bite is worse than my bark, my dermatologist insists my bark needs regular scrubbing. My chiropractor finds me stiff-necked, yet my cardiologist assures me my heart is still in the right place. My optometrist's content with my 2020 hindsight, but claims that my vision for the future is unsure. While as for my personal trainer, she says I can stay the course if it's only one course of a leaner, meaner cuisine. As I watch these specialists wheeling like vultures over me, looking for juicy bits, I wonder, can only the undertaker see me whole as I really am, as he finishes a made-to-measure box to replace my birthday suit? Coming back to uh, my mother, actually, well, it starts with her, um, a poem called Complicity. This is my sort of inner socialist coming out. Complicity. Good Quaker that she was, my mother grew troubled that her building society made her money that she had never worked for. How we are taken in by the logos of rugged pioneer firms, trusted family names, as if we were buying into a tradition. Yet, when I case my larder, Marmite, Bissell, Mai Mustard, and Lipton's soups, Unilever owns them all. Everywhere, multinationals co-opt dreams of fair trade, corner the market on olive oil, frozen cod. Nothing is what it seems. Like sumac roots, ownership gropes underground, seeps like tailings into my coffee cup. By proxy, we are all slavers, exporting asbestos, adorning our heads with blood diamonds, allowing Mexican farmhands to stake their lives at minimum wage because we can look away, because my pension depends on it. The glossy annual reports I discard unread, I prefer not to know how my assets metastasize. Happy face capitalism institutionalizes greed, outsources conscience where it will do no harm to the profit margin. My few square feet of oil sands leach into my bloodstream. At most, I find room to stash my complicity behind small-scale ironies, mental reservations. Barcodes infest my mental DNA. Which of us can afford to be innocent? 
Oh, oh yes. Yeah. So this is this is a poem that I I tried several years running to get either the uh, Vancouver Sun or the Georgia Strait to p- uh, publish around Christmas time, and and obviously it it was too subversive. But I'm going to read it to you. It's called Ruminations at the Manger. Nobody asked us what we felt about it, whether we minded abandoning our straw for a couple of nights and having strangers trample across the byre, invading our privacy, and leaving my best friend Naomi the cow ten hours unmilked, not to mention my hooves sore from standing so long. No, we were herded, as you can see in the paintings, and made to gaze down at the tiny haloed intruder watching it suckle at Mary's breast. We seemed to be kneeling in worship along with the kings and all their entourage. And what did we get for it? Not even an extra carrot. That kind of meekness may be okay for sheep, those humble, fuzzy boulders dotting the hillside. They'd follow any crook. But it's not what I'd call faith. Simple-mindedness, more like. Give me a break. Anyway, now we're the poster animals. Walk on parts for humility and gentle adoration. Mere docile, feel-good Christmas furniture. But does that mean we no longer have to pull plows or get harnessed in traps? Not a bit of it. Animal liberation theology is still a long way off. Well, I'm done with rejoicing put out to pasture now, but I'm not your average Middle Eastern donkey. I think I might emigrate to India where I hear even elephants and monkeys can be gods. Um, at the dentist, I mean, this is another example of something I like to do, you know, sort of uh, take a very ordinary situation like having my teeth cleaned and, and uh, see if I can tweak it into, into something else. <clears throat> at the dentist's. In this bleak sanctuary where Venetian blinds fillet daylight into manageable slices and screen out the passers-by, I present myself for cleaning. The reclining chair, equipped with all the latest high-tech aerodynamic steel, becomes my confessional. When did you last floss? Though here, instead of plain chant, piped music surrounds me. As I lie inert, mouth gaping, a gowned priest attends. Acolytes, sterile handmaidens, pass him his instruments with which to probe tough, soft tissue, seek out my obdurate pockets of decay. Remorse of conscience bites me again. I wince and take a Dixie cup to absolve, swill away gargoyle impurities. Gifted, with an immaculate plastic-encased toothbrush to work at my backslidings, I do my penance, promise a more hygienic future. Then numbly I am dismissed into the world again. <laughs> and then finally, another 
One which, I mean, it, it, it's light in one sense, but I think it's true, ecology. <clears throat> Unlike oil, natural gas, or the Amazon forest, love is a renewable resource. Drill deep enough and you'll find it still welling up from the bed of the ocean or flaring across prairie landscapes. Sweet, light, crude, whatever. Thank you.